Welcome to Composers On Air, a podcast presented by Music Information Center Lithuania. I'm your host, True Rozaski. We'll be hearing conversations with living Lithuanian composers who will be giving us deeper insights into their music. It was an absolute joy to speak with Ruta Witkowskaite about her interest in her audience, her commitment to her collaborators and going very much in depth with her creative process. Complete with all of the challenges that come in it, the meaning of intention and the rigor of execution, also inspiring to hear about. I hope you enjoy this deep dive into so many aspects of a creative mind. Coming to us in a video chat from Scotland. This episode is brought to you by the Lithuanian Council for Culture and the Ministry of Culture of the Republic of Lithuania. So I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Composers on Air. And I am so fascinated by all the things that I've learned about you. And there's so many things that I want to talk to you about. And the first thing I wanted to jump right in with was this idea of beginnings it's something that I try to cover in most of the episodes, but I remember hearing a story where you were making a decision about whether to study something in particular, and you learned that composition was a possibility, and this was a very, let's say, immediate decision, or it felt very clear to you that that's the direction that you wanted your musical life to go in, and I wanted to understand a little bit more maybe what led to that. In other words, can you remember a time earlier in your life where you really felt this creative spark? Yeah, um, that actually brings some memories from before I was a composer, which is very strange to think about. <laughs> but yeah, there was. I went to specialized music school, Cirlonis Music School, and I studied violin as my first instrument and practiced it. And I think the aim was of my studies at that school was for me to become an orchestral musician or soloist, violinist, professional musician. And I just somehow, I was very interested in music and I was also very interested in science at that time. So I used to read lots of books about astronomy and so on and considering maybe I should become a scientist and become a cosmonaut eventually and go to space. <laughs> Somebody told me girls don't go to space, which maybe was true for that time. So that was very disappointing. But also about composition, I never considered to be a composer before, but I had this urge to compose music. I used to be very good at improvising, but I was very, very shy and I would never, ever improvise in front of anybody else, ever. That was my little secret. And I think I had this urge to compose and I had an idea and I sat down and was trying to write something down and it just didn't work because 
somehow improvising was easy for me, but actually composing, engaging your rational mind into this musical flow was very difficult. And so that was that. And I thought, I think that just reiterated my understanding that one is born as a composer and they start composing naturally and that's it. And I can't. And I kind of closed that thought for a few years until I got a composition lesson. And then I realized that you can actually study. So you might have that passion and urge and interest in music, but you do need to learn a few tools, how to transform your ideas onto the paper, how to work with your mind and your imagination and musical flow. So yeah, I think it was just, for me, there was no question that I want to be a composer, but for, there were two things. One thing was bothering me that I thought I wasn't maybe good enough to be a composer, which is a very common thing for musicians to always feel not good enough at everything. <laughs> so nothing unique there. But another thing that I always believed that music is a power, a very, very strong tool to affect people's lives subconsciously. And I was actually worried whether I am a good enough person in a sense, whether if I master this tool, am I going to be using it for the good purposes? I wasn't sure if my heart is in the right place somehow. So it was a bit scary actually to decide to be a composer because I felt it was very, very big responsibility to master the composition. You know, improvisation is also this form of invention. And then you go into the formal aspect of actually writing it down. But you mentioned in your answer, the idea of affecting subconsciously. And I was thinking about often I can hear, say, a piece of music from a previous time in my life. And as soon as I hear it, the entire atmosphere comes into being where I feel everything and I feel a complete sense of everything, even smells, details of memory and this sort of thing. And I understand that you've also developed ideas around the collective unconscious or Jung's work integrating philosophical ideas in your process. And of course, there's always stimulus for creating something, but what brought you to that interest and how did you connect it to your creative life? I actually, this interest into subconscious processes when composing came quite much later on. At the start of my journey, I was just writing music. It was just coming out. I was just writing it down, trying to do my best. Sometimes it would just pour out of me. Sometimes it was a hard work. But I think actually this interest into understanding what happens when I compose came when I moved to London and started doing my own PhD research, doctoral research, which initially I wanted to do around spatial music because that was I was working in. But I started to have more and more questions as one does <laughs> when one starts the research. And I was really bothered that I am trying to write about something that 
I am doing myself and I'm not understanding what is happening to me when I compose music. So I really wanted to understand that. And I think there wasn't quite uh, any kind of maybe precise description of what composers experience it all i read quite a lot of books written both by composers and about the composers and it actually annoyed me that the whole compositional process was left to some kind of this mysterious inspiration that nobody ever talks about or tries to unfold i really wanted to unfold actually step by step what's going on so i started looking more into scientific literature and you know neuroscience and um also, maybe some reflections of people from other professions, even some businessmen, people who are really trying to understand, let's say, how to provoke an innovative ideas, people who actually make money from this. So they actually put a lot of effort into understanding how to do that. So that was very interesting and incredibly useful for me because maybe I became much, much more confident and much more in charge of my processes. And when I get a commission, I know exactly how long it will take me to write it because I'm aware of how long it will take me to generate the ideas, put them down. Also, all this compositional craft, of course, with time, I understand how long each step takes, but I also know how long it will take me to chase up the inspiration, this mysterious thing, because there is really nothing mysterious about it.
I guess when you understand more through, say, study and gathering perspectives, particularly perspectives of the intellect, it gives something to name when you're feeling the feeling. So when you sort of have the creative impulse and you're wondering, what is this mysterious feeling? What are all these subtleties? What are all these layers? What are all these colors in my mind? And then the more you learn about it, the more you connect and you understand it. So, yeah, I, I can see that that confidence really builds for you for that feeling lost if you didn't have it, you know. Because I think some of the process also might be without intellect, like when we talk about intuition. So intuition comes from somewhere also, but it's hard to name where that comes from. How do you see intuition coming into play? I work a lot with intuition. I think intuition, I think I read in one of the dictionaries what intuition is. <laughs> intuition is really just a shortcut of, of the mind. Intuition is something based on the collection of my knowledge, something that I know and understand, and all that knowledge sits in different parts of my brain, and my brain instantaneously gathers all of that information and everything that it sees around through my eyes and can hear through my ears. And instead of me rationally trying to find the best solution, it jumps, it's a shortcut, it jumps into the best solution subconsciously. So this is one of those things that I use when I understood my subconscious processes. I'm very confident of using my intuition because I know that this is something is not something that I wouldn't come up if I was trying to think through every step rationally. Why not allow my mind to do it in much, much shorter amount of time while my consciousness can be busy maybe cooking or making a cup of tea going through that process. So I started to think about all of those things very, very rationally. And actually I was thinking when you asked me about understanding my processes, maybe it just came to mind to me, just actually right now, it came to mind to me that before I started looking into subconscious processes, I used to, same as every composer, I guess, during composition process, experience a stage of immense discomfort and anxiety caused by internal panic and a very, very unpleasant state of mind and even body 
And I think I, when I was young and student, I used to think, oh, something is really seriously wrong there. Because, of course, compositional process is supposed to be lovely and pleasant and, you know, <laughs> all of these nice things. And I think I really understood that this is a stage that one needs to go through. So all of this, when this anxiety and unpleasantness comes, I know I am almost there and I'm great. <laughs> this is, you know, I'm, I'm really, really, really getting there. I'm there right at the bottom now and I just need to do a few more steps and the piece will be born because it's almost impossible maybe to write a good piece without completely, I think it's completely disintegrating all you know about yourself and music and then reintegrating it together into this new composition, new the birth of new piece of music. It's a very difficult process and the harder the time is, the more anxieties then the more terrible i feel the better the peace will be i know that for sure <laughs> that is so fascinating especially you know you expect it you expect it to happen and it's almost planned that the anxiety comes and then you make friends with the anxiety and work with it and move forward i was very very excited to hear about your doctoral studies and the topic of audience relationship or audience accessibility was also my thesis for my master's in composition. And I had never met anybody else who's even thinking about it. And I sometimes ask the question about even considering the audience. And many composers will answer that they don't consider audience at all. So you're the opposite. You're considering it. And the way I wanted to frame it was, so we work in this academic music community and sometimes we call it contemporary classical. Sometimes we call it new music. And sometimes we have to admit that this is the music of our time. And yet the broader public doesn't feel connected to it. It also bothers me quite a bit too. And I'm wondering, what is the big picture force of this work with audience consideration? Tell us what the work is about. Yeah, it's really good pleasure to meet someone who thinks about audiences. Because you're right, I think composers might not consider audience. And this all comes, to my opinion, it all comes from the way composition is being taught, from the university education, really. If it had been taught differently, people probably would consider audience much more. But there is this very clear composer-performer-audience uh, division. Composers are taught... It's, it's a little bit of a... I think it's very much influenced by capitalistic thinking and it's pretty much a business model. Everybody do, does their little job and that's it. And then uh, the system will function. And I work a lot in classical contemporary music world and in a way I actually appreciate that I only need to do this little job and everybody else will do everything else it's a it's very it can be very reassuring feeling from one hand from the other hand I also work a lot with communities and community setting where music is being experienced performed and explored in absolutely different way it's all about 
just being part of it, just participating and enjoying it. There is not so much pressure to show something to the audience. And if there is a concert, it's more or less a community event where everybody is having lots of fun. And if somebody made a mistake on the stage, everybody is having a little bit of a laugh. And this is all great. It just, there's good feeling and energy. And I think I've been thinking about it a lot. And I, I actually feel that this distance of music from the audience is not very healthy because I'm very interested in tribal music as well. And especially the way it's being composed with community. It's this community mindset that composes over generations and generations, that music that stays there. And the way to experience that music is to perform it. It's not designed for listening. And I think this experiential aspect, this participation in music is very integral to music and it's very, very important. And I understand that contemporary classical music quite often is really complex, which is important as well. It has to be, it has to... I don't think about music as a way of entertainment. I think music is something that is much, much bigger and much more important. And through music, people can understand subconsciously the world, uh, the societies, the yourself and others. It's a very great tool to actually explain and communicate the complexities of our world to each other. And this is what composers do. But the distance that being created between the new music and the audience is actually, I think sometimes that doesn't allow the audience to read the message that's in there because the language is too, maybe too unapproachable or the setting is too unapproachable. And I don't believe that music needs to be simplified. The complexity of music, new music needs to be simplified for the audience. But I think audience sometimes need a little bit of a guidance to approach the piece of music. For example, some years ago, I was in London at Barbican. There was a big celebration of Brian Fernahau, and you can't find quite anything more complex than that. Very, very complex music. And orchestra, what they did before playing this extremely complex orchestral piece, I can't remember which one that was, but they actually spent an... I don't know, some time, big chunk of time before the concert, just playing bits of music and saying, listen to this. Well, this is one of the themes. You will notice it about five minutes <laughs> into the piece. It's very important. Listen to this, listen to these instruments, listen to that. The piece is built of this and this and this and just introducing moments of the piece. So when listener is listening, it's not a complete cacophony for them. And they know what to look forward to, what to listen to, what to expect, and much, much more enjoyable process of listening, actually.
I was thinking about the typical perception of a contemporary classical presentation on stage. People can be very disconnected from, say, an instrumentalist that's a laptop computer. And that's something that I was trying to bring to light. And you, on the other hand, took it even a step further to challenge the audience. And I was thinking of this opera, this Confessions project. You actually blindfolded the audience. So you take the obvious obstacle that people have about accessing what they expect to access, which is somebody controlling an object in a masterful way. And then there's the object that they have no access to, which is, was, say, a computer. And then in your case, you know, let's just go all the way. Let's just blindfold the audience. So I think it's a very, I want to say courageous, but also an aggressive approach to, you know, the, the risks of taking in something new. And also, I was thinking, you have your PhD from the Royal Academy of Music in London, extremely prestigious from an international perspective. Did you have a challenge defending this topic to them? Yeah, it's interestingly, Royal Academy of Music in London is a very conservative institution. Nevertheless, they did invite me to do doctoral research then knowing my topics and my background and I think it was, for the research department, it was certainly very interesting what I was doing. I never had to defend myself to anyone there because I think people were expecting me to do something quite radical like this. From the other hand, it was actually sometimes a little bit hard to connect what I'm doing to contemporary classical music world and people who are very, very, very highly trained to work in that one role that I just spoken about, either composer or performer or audience, <laughs> so to say. And yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to answer this question. I guess I, when studying at the Royal Academy, I was encouraged and I quite happily took upon myself to explore more maybe traditional score writing, traditional, <laughs> it wasn't traditional in a way, but it's maybe for, for me at that point felt a bit more traditional way of writing the scores and perfecting my writing for instruments on the stave scale and notating music correctly. Because, for example, Opera Confessions, the blindfolded opera, is doesn't have a score at all. We composed it, there are three creators, so it's not only me, not only my credit, it's myself and composer Jens Hedman, who is electroacoustic music composer, and soprano Orson Norgren, who also composed the opera. We all created it and we all performing it. So while there are written out some vocal lines for Orsa and lyrics, everything else is in our memories. We perform it entirely from memory because it's such a complex electroacoustic surround that to write it down I wouldn't even know where to start to really <laughs> there's lots of running around and playing and synchronizing with tiniest sound in the electroacoustic surround it's very complicated and we worked on it for a very long time but maybe answering to your question about this radical decisions to blindfold the audience it came to me at that time, I was still living in Lithuania and more and more working 
with audiovisual settings. And I love doing videos and working with visuals, really. I enjoy it so very much. But I started to see my own tendency of prioritizing the visual aspects, working, putting a lot of work on video, and then neglecting music. And the music would be less and less complex, more and more something just there to accompany the video. And I just, I just felt I had to stop this because I wanted to work with music only. And I realized that there isn't quite a way for me to do audiovisual performance with visuals actually not taking all the attention of the audience because we are very visually oriented culture and as soon as there is something to look at we will look at that and ignore the music altogether so this is where the decision to blindfold our audience came from that we didn't want people to look at anything just listen I almost went through the exact same process without that thought, but a lot of my colleagues were interested in multimedia and ways to connect their music to other mediums. And it seemed like a distraction to me. It seemed like they were spreading out their energies in different areas with their time. Because, you know, when you work with video, you, you know, you have to learn video and you have to understand what it means and, and other things. And I thought, I'm specifically going to stick with sound and music and that's it. And I hated when somebody would assume if I played them something that sounded like some type of classical music, they would say, oh, what's that from? And of course, what they're thinking of is a film. And that also upset me. So I didn't like that either, because then again, you're putting your mind on some visual element and you're removing it from your ears and you're removing it from sound experience. Yeah, I think it's very important to really confront the public and invite them, encourage them to open up their stiff ideas and their conventional ideas and just open it up completely, just so some possibilities can come up. I think it's actually, I always try to, especially these days, I always say I work in concert music industry. So I always say that my music is for the concerts. It's for the, it's not for the film. It's not for anything else. It's not for theater. It's not to accompany something. It is the focus of the evening. <laughs> it has to be the focus of the attention. And I actually, I also think a lot about the power of, uh, live concerts where musicians perform and you get to see them perform. And while I don't really like the stage and the distance, I think it's amazing for the audience to be and watch somebody play and have this visual connection of somebody moving their hands and bodies and breathing and seeing, hearing the sound coming out of that action. I think this is very, very powerful. I, I keep saying this, but I read somewhere that we people can endlessly watch running water, burning fire and working man or woman, of course, for that matter. But I think this watching of somebody work on the stage, it's a very hypnotizing experience and having that connection with music that's coming out. And Therefore, I really, I work a lot 
as I said, in the classical concert music setting, just because I think this is brilliant and very, very important. And I, of course, would never wish to lose it for our humanity. <laughs> So you mentioned the body as a device of expression. And as I was listening to many pieces, I also was greeted by a vocal presence, the human presence. I hear a human presence in a lot of your music, even if it seems to be an instrumental piece. And then at some point, there's this physical, you hear the human being. There's something vocal going on or some breathing going on or something like that seems to be a tendency of yours. Yeah, interesting. Nobody ever told me that. <laughs> but it could be, there could be the reason for it. When I write music, I quite often, especially recently, I got so tired at just sitting at the computer, my eyes get tired and I'm just tired of computer 
just being on the screen because of course as a composer you have to spend so much time notating your music and uh, doing all the parts and all the little things in the score that need to be done it takes hours and hours but computer as well I do all my admin and all my other life on the computer so just a little bit too much of the screen time so I try to not work at the computer when I compose music for as long as I can and I very often compose music on the instrument if I can get um, hold of it for example when I was writing the bass drum piece I have a very bad bass drum from old drum kit <laughs> but I I actually was trying to physically play it and I think this connection of movement I understand of course I'm not fit enough to play instrument very well but it affects the way I write music the timing of it the how long I will listen to one sound how long it will take for me to move from one section to another and also the intensity of music because I by playing an instrument I realize how quickly I can I get tired and I, I know that I of course get tired much faster than professional musician but I understand the physical effort it takes so I try to have this comfortable face for musicians so they can put all their energy and have a time to rest and breathe and maybe that's the breathing that you can hear in between uh, which is scheduled maybe in the form of the piece often when somebody asks you what you do and you say i'm a composer do you ever hear anybody say oh really what do you play which is not an answer to the question, but they always ask that question. And of course, you can say, well, I'm a violinist. But the point is, if you're a composer, it means you're writing for all instruments. And so maybe they can't understand that. They can't understand, well, how can you possibly write for instruments that you don't play? But then there are some people that want to get closer to the instruments that they're writing for. So do you find yourself really trying to spend time with the actual instruments? Of course, there are some instruments that I can't possibly handle. Like, for example, I can't play a single brass instrument. It's just complete mystery for me. So if I'm to write something for brass, I will work with musicians. And I do, I do a lot anyway. I mean, even with a bass drum player. To write my bass drum piece, not only I spend lots of time with bass drum, but also with the three musicians actually at, at different times helped me to understand the instrument. And I think either instrument or instrument plus musician who can actually play it properly. Yes, definitely. And I, I really, really enjoy that time. And I, I know composers who write absolutely fantastic, stunning pieces, really highly technically complex pieces very, very good for instruments without having a single conversation with musicians by finding all the information in the books and on YouTube. But I'm never shy to admit that I'm not that person. I just go and ask questions and I don't feel embarrassed at all that somebody with PhD from the Royal Academy doesn't know how <laughs> this or that work. I think I just don't. And I... I think the easiest way is to go and ask. It would take me so much longer to dig that information out of the books and I might never ever find it even.
So the collaborative aspect is very powerful. You connect with the people and learn from them and maybe spend some time with them privately and trying things and experimenting with them and seeing what their limitations are and, and things like that, I guess. Yeah, it's initially, actually, there is an interesting point that, that initially I used to, and I still do, I write pieces for specific people. And that's very important. For example, right now I'm writing a piece for a harp player, um, Joanna Donite, and she asked me a while ago, and she asked me, how do you want to work? Do you want to just write a piece or do you want to do it very collaboratively? And I asked, can we do it as collaboratively as we can? And so every stage of this piece was worked together. So the piece will be based around the onomatopoeic words from Lithuanian Sutertinas, from the folk songs, which you actually mentioned to me before, because both of us have very strong interest in that, and that was just a meeting point for us. And the whole piece is developed in very strong collaboration with her. So it is a piece for a particular musician, and a lot of my music is actually. But lately I realized sometimes I actually write pieces for instruments and for example my violin concerto which was just premiered yeah i was just going to congratulate you on that because it's a recent performance in the festival and i heard it was very successful and everybody loved it and of course this is an example of closer connection for you because you know you are indeed a violinist as well so there must have been a stronger force there for that set of relationships. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I am still very, very happy about this. There will be three more parts to it. It's not finished yet. <laughs> but yeah, the piece, I, I started writing it long time ago and thinking about it. And the piece actually has lots of elements from my other music that I've written for violin before. The highlights, you could say. <laughs> and I... I can't really tell. This piece is not written for myself because I can't possibly play it, not very well at least. But it is really written for violin instrument. And then when Dala Kuznetsovita, the soloist of the piece, came into the picture, we worked together and lots of elements were tailored towards her as well. So it is a piece dedicated to her. And yet I feel that actually it is a piece... In, in my dedication, I say that it's dedicated to my violin, the violin that I have for many, many years, because it is really for the instrument. That particular piece is not a for one or another person. Yeah, that's very interesting. So she played on your violin? No, no, she hasn't. <laughs> ah, that would, be, that would be really interesting. No, she wouldn't want to, and I probably would be a bit nervous about it. I think people, like especially string players, but probably any players, any musicians, have this very strange attachment to their instruments. And I, I have an attachment to my violin, and I let people play it, other people play it, but I do get extremely nervous about it. It's like, I think that they will break it, or they will not play it right, and then it will be broken. <laughs> yeah, it's also an intimate relationship. So it's like you're coming a little bit too close to my private matter. Surprisingly, I had another musicians who would allow me to play their instruments. But I think 
I, I don't know. I think it depends a little bit on the person, but I think each musician have their own, the, their main, if you have a few violins at home, there is one that's your main violin that nobody else is allowed to touch, I guess. That's how it works, probably. So I, I was talking a lot about subconscious processes in composition and how I'm confident and understanding them. But this connection I can't quite explain, and I don't know what is there, but there is definitely something, some kind of, spirit in the instrument that awakes when I play it and I am worried that somebody else will scare it off and it will be gone from my violin. It's almost like this probably. And I, I remember when I gave my violin for Luthier to fix it because it's uh, it hasn't been looked after for a long time and it needed to be refurbished. Yeah, we had that conversation about the violin and the spirit he really really understood that and the attention and detail that he gave to the violin actually to sound again to almost as if violin was a little bit ill and it needed that attention and care yeah
So let's talk about space because you have this also this very intimate, vulnerable process of writing music that you go through before it becomes, you know, something comfortable. And do you have a the same type of care for your space? Do you have a specific space that you care for that you write music and work creatively in? Yes. I need a room where I can shut the doors and nobody to disturb me. I can get really anxious, actually. I really, really don't like people coming in. And, uh, for example, I work at home a lot and we sh- I share the apartment with my partner. And we have this agreement that when I compose and my doors are shut, he's not allowed to come in and offer me a cup of tea because I might stab him. <laughs> it's really, it's really bad. <laughs> but it, it really is like this. I, it can be really, really intense for me. And I, it just, it just because I can be so deep into the music. And if somebody offers me a cup of tea, I need to like wake up from that state of mind and when I come back to it, I lost half of my piece and I just get really, really angry. <laughs> but is the space itself dedicated space or is it just a temporarily because you're working, you close the door and he's in the space sometimes too? I did have a room dedicated for composing, especially f- through the lockdown, it was my working room, my composition room. Right now, I don't have a dedicated room, but I still, when I, let's say, when I compose, I don't compose every day. Instead of I compose, I block a day, two, three days a week for composing because I I really need to, I need the whole day to compose, really. I can't just compose a bit and then do something else because it's too, it's too hard for me. So on my composing days, for example, I take our biggest space in the house and that's my room, I shut the door and that's my composing room because I I really need either big room or small room with a big view, with a wide view where I can see very far. Otherwise, it can become... I, I really can't compose in a small spaces without windows. It's impossible. And I, I remember I made that point when I was studying at the academy, that how can a composer work? There was a room with one room with no windows, gray wallpaper or whatever, and all these buzzing computers, you know, this quiet buzz that all computers have. <laughs> this is a word. How can, how can somebody compose music? It's impossible <laughs> in such an environment. I better go down to the cafe and sit there and write music, at least there is some view or I don't know. It's, um, yeah, I think, I think I need to allow, allow myself a space indoors or outdoors. I quite like composing in nature as well. If I have a possibility and if the weather is good, I would just take a manuscript paper or a book and a recording device, just go and sit in nature. I find it very, very inspiring or even walk around and compose that I do as well if I can. 
I was trying to lean into this almost metaphysical aspect because you had mentioned this with the violin and the instrument and sort of the accumulation of energy that might be potentially destroyed by this connection and so on. And this idea of disruption of energy is, I think it's a very interesting thing. And you know, if you've ever walked into a room of an angry person, knowing that they're angry, you don't even have to see their face. You could just see the back of their head, but you feel it in the room. So if you feel something in the room, like anger, and I think it's a universal experience, people often share this experience. They call it, you know, vibes or, you know, the air is thick, etc. It seems to have a time element to it, this association of this tension or stress or whatever's in the air. And so if that's true, which it seems to be true, then it seems that there must be a potentially long life for that energy to be in the space. And so I think that's why I was leaning into that so much, because I do think that for some composers, the space is really super sacred and don't even come in here ever for any reason. And I've learned to respect that for sure. Yeah, I think if I could, I would definitely have a space for composing. I also meditate. So I would have one room for meditation, one for composing, one for socializing, and different rooms for every activity. We actually sometimes laugh with my partner that we need two houses <laughs> with lots of rooms <laughs> to fit everything in. But of course, the reality was such that I, when living in London, I was living in all kinds of accommodations and rooms and moved around a lot and I lived in one room which was like I don't know maybe six square meters with my bed a bedroom and working and desk and everything so having gone through all kinds of accommodations and not having maybe this opportunity to just have a dedicated room I learn to make a space for myself so I can make that room and I, I absolutely agree with you that the energy of course stays and if say we have a room where we watch telly and all kinds of Netflix <laughs> some some binge watching in the evenings and then the same room using for composing it takes some effort actually to make that room suitable but I think this is something that w where I was talking about understanding my subconscious processes and making the use of the time that I have to write the best music I can I'm the same as with the space I will make the space so that's why I block the whole day so I can take any room and I will start with tidying it up sorting it all out making sure that there is a view and that I can sit and look out of the window or just making sure that it's like preparing the space I'll spend probably <laughs> an hour depending how messy the room is but I can prepare any space and yeah maybe in such way clean cleanse the energy a little bit that was there before and then it's ready for me to compose and then in the evening I wrap it up the room can be used for whatever else you need and then next morning I go through the same ritual really yeah that's a wonderful word you use ritual rather than routine because I think one could use the word routine and it's very different you did mention that you're a meditator and I didn't want to let that go so I find it interesting that you brought that up because I want to know how your meditation practice is connected to your 
creative process as well. Oh yeah. I started meditating about probably about seven years ago or so. I really, really became interested in that. And so I do it quite regularly. And meditation is really understanding myself from within and understanding with years of practice, I get deeper and deeper into understanding who I am and as a human being and my place in the world and connection with the rest of the world. And of course, that affects my music enormously because when I compose, I also dive so deep into myself. And I think I actually recently started to think that there is some kind of battle for me, internal battle going on with the meditation and composing because in with meditation practice, I go very deep and I go maybe in the spaces of discomfort or, or go into areas which maybe I don't want to look in, but I have to and I do. And it's a very, I could say this is very controlled process for me and very it's a slow and controlled process when with music composition I let things happen to me and I always feel like the deeper I go with, with meditation when I compose I kind of spike through this and go even deeper than that and it's always there is always even more there is something for me to understand and then with meditation I kind of come to that place and find my balance in that place and I think okay now I'm all grounded now I'm write the next piece from this space from this feeling of groundedness and with the next piece I'm completely unbalanced myself and <laughs> and again I have to do that work and I think it's kind of it's a bit of a I kind of go with each meditation practice and composition I go deeper and deeper and deeper in, into myself and yeah, it's almost like as if with meditation I follow and explain to myself the subconscious processes of composing. And with composing, I kind of affect the depth of the meditation practice. So it's, yeah, it goes hand in hand for me.
I wanted to, since we already talked about future projects, which I usually close with, I wanted to ask you about your sound walks because this is another project of yours and it ties into some of the things we talked about earlier as well. But uh, I've agreed to participate in one coming on Sunday. So I have to get up a little bit early, 5.30, but it's not too different than when I get up anyway. So I look forward to that. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your sound walks and how they can participate as well? Yeah, uh, so this idea of walking is interesting to me because as i said i compose sometimes while walking and get inspired by the environment and while i don't really work so much in audiovisual music creation i think looking around while listening to music is great (laughs) just observing your environment and seeing how music shows you different things and how you start paying attention at different things surrounding you when listening to particular music. So the soundwalk that you will attend is actually based around... There are a few themes in that soundwalk. So first, it's called Soundwalk with a Bard of the Birds. So it's, it is oriented towards birds. But the research behind it was into the bird song and how the bird song is connected to many ancient languages. Especially here in Scotland, there is still alive Old Norse language and Gaelic language. Both languages have words that replicate bird songs to, let's say, the bird name would be a word that replicates the bird song in the best possible way. So lots of such onomatopoeic words in old languages and I'm very interested in this music and language connection and I read one article actually uh, which told that in our ancient brains music and language was developed because one it was one thing and then at some point language kind of moved uh, into the specific area of the brain which is now is called the language center while music activates the whole brain still so so that connection of music and language is now lost or slightly more detached, but I think through onomatopoeic words, we can really recover it. And it just explains to me even more, I was talking about this power of music, and I think music is such a great tool to explain the world. It might sound a bit cliche when I say music is the universal language, but I think music really originated in the sense, in that need to explain and understand the world as language does but it maybe we don't approach music in the same way anymore but it's still integrated in our brains and minds i really 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 think so so coming back to the sound <laughs> coming back to the sound that that was our research so there are three composers myself emily Doolittle, and Gemma mcgregor who wrote music thinking about all these things and the poet don wood who wrote poetry, also thinking about such things. And our soundwalk actually is unusual in a way that we designed it. Dawn, the poet, is also a professional hypnotherapist. So she used her knowledge to create a route which you can take from your home and walk in any area. And the way we designed the text and instruction and the guidance for the route will work for anyone anywhere really independently what speed you walk and 
what area is it nature or is it a more industrial landscape you live in and yeah even though instructions you will hear they are quite specific <laughs> so without giving too much away I see I have some homework to do. I look forward to doing that as well. I also wanted to acknowledge so much of, you know, your success of late and also all the awards that you've received. I think you've won the orchestral composition of the year for the Lithuanian Composers Union something like five times. And all the collaborations of all the ensembles that you're working with all over Europe. And it's just been a, a real pleasure to speak with you today. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was really interesting to talk to you. And thank you for actually, I'm so glad to hear that we have so many overlapping areas of interest as well. That's really nice.